Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. I really am thrilled to be doing this, Rob, because I admire your work a great deal, and it's rare that I find somebody from afar that I've been wanting to talk to because their story seems uh, somehow something even more admirable to me. Now, you might not view it this way. I don't know how much nobility you think there is in your story, but in watching the art that you've made and watching the life that you've chosen, it's sort of been a pleasure to watch your work grow and to uh, to see, you know, the things that you are choosing late in life to do artistically. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. And uh, and thank you for acknowledging that I am late in my life. I, uh, there's an honest, a refreshing honesty to that. Uh, I am 45, so I'm well more than halfway 45 there. is late in life? <laughs> I mean, I do think about it, though, sometimes, though. Like, I'm definitely more than halfway done, and that's funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Um how does but, yeah. it feel to be told that you're late in life by someone who is considerably older than you? Who's a great deal older than me? It's strange. I wonder, does he know things about, does he have access to my medical file? Has he seen things that I haven't seen? I, I just feel like, <laughs> I feel through your art like you've lived more than I have. It's really, it's, it's really what I'm doing there in the having of four kids, in the uh, choosing work-life balance, in learning uh, life's lesson. I just think that I was atrophied as a, <laughs> as, as an, as a young person. Yeah, I mean, I guess the... The things that uh, that I've experienced that maybe most people haven't uh, are, you know, I did, did get sober 20 years ago after after uh, going to jail after a car accident that I was responsible for, and I've stayed sober, so that's been pretty cool. I've had the unbelievable good fortune to to make a living in comedy, and of course I didn't for a long time before I did, so that was. That was challenging. And then, but the biggest thing uh, would be that my wife and I, one of our sons got cancer and, and passed away a few years ago. So, so those are, yeah, those are the big things that I've been through that I think, you know, are, are placed me in sort of a strange minority. I think I covered it all. Well, life-altering things, yeah. right? Because arriving at comedy success must have been the realization of your dreams, right? You came from, your comedy story doesn't, there aren't a lot of people who had comedy success the way you did, just sort of discovered by social media. I can say that, right? Uh, oh, sure, yeah. It, it came at an interesting time because I was trying very hard to get hired by, say, Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, um, you know, writing jokes by the stack, by the physical paper stack, you know, because I'm submitting um, two-liner jokes, you know, by the pound to try to get hired as a late-night writer. So then Twitter comes along, and I've got piles of jokes that no one will pay me for, no one wants, and I mean, I send them to people, and they're like, oh, no thanks, you know, or these are great, but still, no thanks. 
And uh, so I had a place to focus this stuff. Uh, so it was sort of a right place, right time kind of a thing. So myself and, you know, many other people around the same time figured, oh, you know, Twitter's not just for posting, you know, recipes and, you know, things like that. It can also be for jokes. And so I really lucked out that that came along at the right time for me. Vision or happenstance? Happenstance, purely. <laughs> so you don't have success in comedy, if not for that? You're just another rejected writer oh, writing um, stacks of jokes <clears throat> that doesn't uh, get an avenue towards success? Oh, you never know. I mean, I have a work ethic that I can at least say about myself. So, and I'm, I'm nice. You know, I think that might be part of being sober and having success come a little later in life. But I still am as nice as possible. So people will rehire me after they work with me. So maybe I would have had success through both my two-pronged approach of working hard and being nice. Because that goes pretty far, you learn, after some time passes, some decades pass, and people start to evaporate. Or you get the job of somebody who, talent-wise, absolutely deserves it more, but maybe they're a jerk, you know, or they just forget to set their alarm, and then you get their job, and then, you know, screw them. Your kindness is displayed in this segment, where a 53-year-old man dressed like he's going to the band's Warped Tour called you old. <laughs> Precisely. He just said success later in life, and I let him slide mm. on it. I, he just got done yep. saying success later in life, and I'm yeah, like, so you did. acknowledge you are later than uh, in life. You, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, sun, it's sunset for me. I, I meant you, it. I think you finesse that answer out of him. <laughs> I meant it as awkward admiration for this man has lived and learned and put down. I just see in your work that you've put down your ego, and it's, it's beautiful to see art flourish there. I don't know what that means, what you just said, that I put down my ego. I, I genuinely, how do, can you elaborate? <laughs> I think that you are only choosing projects right now, that you have a unique freedom in comedy where you can choose projects now because Catastrophe was such a unique success that your life story is intertwined in it. You're learning about yourself as you're telling the story. It is unfathomable, the range you show in it as someone who is uh, producing the whole thing with a partner, but it's yeah. you guys yeah. making a hit television show cheaply that is smart and funny and layered, and you made it, and from there you can make all the choices in life. And you've lived and learned enough to know uh, that you have to choose wisely there because you want to be with your kids and you want to have life balance and professional ego has gotten you in trouble. Gotcha, yeah. So so, so, yeah, one thing that I do now is, like, I'll turn down work and my uh, agents and stuff will be like, are you kidding me? Do you know how much money that would be? But because my success came in my sunset years and I, I, I now am like, well, but I don't need that money. Do you understand? They gave me, like, I can afford pants and eggs and things. Like, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't know what to do with more money. So I have, like, way less money than other people in this industry, but because I can afford to pay my rent with it, like that's my wildest dreams achieved. So I don't, so I don't get lured by money now. It's do I like the job? So yeah, for the moment, I'm very lucky in that in that aspect. But what I've read about you, though, it seems like a unique Hollywood value system. Am I, I wrong about this? My value system is a little bit different in that I I do it by the time the project will take because I know more about time than your average civilian because I don't have any more of it left with one of my kids, you know? And so I don't mess around when it comes to how long will a job take or where does it shoot? Those are massively critical factors in me choosing a job. If I write anything, I make sure to set it in my neighborhood so that I can walk to it. Um, or I write a book, which I'm doing right now so that I can just write that in my underwear in my home. 
Um, as long as my kids aren't in it because they don't, kids don't let you do things even in your own house. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, do it based on prestige or money. I do it based on time proximity. And is it good? I mean, I guess it, I would do something bad if it shot next to my house. I would absolutely shoot a bucket of garbage, but if I have to travel for it, it's going to be good. I don't know that that's the value system and forgive me, maybe it is of, how it is that you rise in comedy, uh, the traditional path. Like success, you had one route to comedy yeah. success. You took a bit of a shortcut, right? Because you're mm -hmm. not selling flyers outside of clubs. You're not, you got into the club because you had rejected jokes and social media arrived. Oh yeah, those helped a lot. So I'm doing stand-up. I'm taking, you know, the bus to go do stand-up in Los Angeles and I've got my stacks of jokes that I'm submitting during the daytime. So I'm doing I'm doing all the stuff that everybody else is doing, but I do have the extra massive incredible good fortune of, you know, building a social media following where I can say, "Hey, people in Cleveland, I'm going to come do stand up." And then people in Cleveland will know because I've had the good luck to have people following me who live in or around Cleveland. And so how does stand up comedy end up being a path for you? How brave, how much do you enjoy it versus the other things that you do creatively? Uh, I love it very much. You know, I love to do all the stuff. Like I love to write and produce TV. I'm very, very happy to act in other people's stuff. I love to write a book, you know, but uh, with the stand-up, that's very special because you're doing so many jobs at once. You know, you're the writer, the performer, the producer, the lighting guy, you know, and so that is... Uh, a very special and unique thing, you know, without a net, and then you're so dependent on the audience, you know, even though they're not ostensibly not saying anything or that much, their energy is so vital. So that's, that's a massive part of it, and I love doing it desperately. Yeah. Love it, but scary. It sounds scary to me. I back away from the words that you're saying, and I understand that comedians lean into it, but that's why I think it's such a brave pursuit. I, here's why I don't think it's brave, because... You have to have, there's a, if you identify the particular folds or even maybe smooth portions of your brain that need to do stand up, it's just best to obey that, you know, because nobody normal wants to do stand up. I understand on paper it's scary, but if you have that kink that makes you want to do it, it's better to do it than not. So it's like just having, a, a, I don't know, an appendix, a, an, an organ that you don't need or some thing hanging off your body that you should acknowledge. Uh, that weird thing is hanging off my body. I should go display it on a stage. But did you have a calling then young of like, yes, I have to make jokes in front of people. I have a need. I must be la I must get laughter. Yeah, I knew I wanted to perform and I knew I loved being funny. Um, and any time. So I, I started doing like theater and stuff. But then as soon as I started seeing live comedy as a kid then I thought oh that's like if doing a play is like smoking a joint then telling a joke and having people laugh at it is crack you know so and I as I hope you know endorse crack smoking in all its forms <laughs> it's one of the many controversial stands how many forms are there for well, crack, crack smoking, smoking? are pro, there pro crack. in all its forms well, real, real smoking of crack of course and then metaphorical smoking of crack which is doing stand-up or things that you might be afraid of but so it feels cracky uh, stand-up is the only one that gives you that right gives Correct. you uh, acting doesn't give you that writing can't no. give you that no, no. Uh, stand-up uh, and you love it more than the others just because no, I don't actually uh i i because I, I love i mean to write a show write dialogue and have it come out of somebody else's mouth and be broadcast on a television 
Jesus, that's amazing. But that's a slower build kind of a thing. That's where the smoking pot might be healthier in that you can do it more consistently and for longer with less catastrophic consequences. So I guess what I'm saying is do lots of drugs. And of course, I've also been sober for 20 years. Always good life lessons to be found here. I imagine there will be some in your book. I know you're doing A Man Who Fell to Earth now as an acting project, but I wanted to ask you about a book project that is not yet complete and why you're doing it and when you could have chosen anything in the world. Were you choosing this because you could do it from home? Uh, so, no, but I'm glad that I can do it at home. The, here's the thing. Um, my son, Henry, um, passed away from brain cancer four years ago and um that of course was an unbelievable nightmare it still there's reverberations through our lives now of course it remains terrible and sad and awful there's no light at the end of the tunnel there's no you know it's just fundamentally bad that he died and it sucks and we hate it um I have spoken about his death publicly. I've written about it. Um, and, you know, I've spoken about it on TV and stuff and been interviewed about it. And anytime that I do that, people get in touch with me by the droves. Uh, bereaved parents, bereaved siblings, because not only did my wife and I, you know, our son died, but his brothers who loved him desperately, they lost their brother. And, and so siblings and parents will get in touch with me about having had a, having had a you know, child or a sibling die. And it's like somebody poured water on their desert you know, floor and they're drinking it in. It's, and it's similar to what I get when I go to like a bereaved parents meeting in London where I live, which I will do. And I'm lucky to be able to do that living in a big, you know, urban pulsing megalopolis you can find anything including help if you've lost a child and so you know some people who might live somewhere more rural or might not have access to that um i wanted to write something for them and i i whenever i said anything people were so grateful that i was like okay i think this could be good and i think the energy of henry's life could be transformed into something that could help people just by me talking about it because when we first met, when my wife and I first met other parents who'd lost kids and they would talk to us, it's not so much about the talking because there's nothing you can say. There's no words that help. But just seeing uh, someone who whose child had died maybe some years before ours did, and now they know how to button their own pants, you know, or cross a street without getting hit by a car because they have, have are able to be aware again of their surroundings was so helpful to us. So just to be able to participate in that human act of kindness through honesty and facing difficult stuff is something that I wanted to do. So I've just said a lot, but that's the thrust of it. Uh, yet I suspect that your life was altered so much that you'd like to say more, and I'd like you to have the forum to say more because you were fundamentally altered by this, and you are speaking to the greatest grief that someone could know, and it changed you in ways that haunt you still, and you decide to write a book in honor of him, but also, I, I imagine, exploring grief and, and wanting to help lift the weight for anyone out there who could use one paragraph of lifted weight. Yeah, you know, and even before uh, our, our son died, uh, curiously, uh, right before he got sick, he was alive. He got diagnosed right around his first birthday. Uh, my wife and I found a book called Billy, Me, and You, 
by this British cartoonist named Nicholas Streeton. And it blew our assholes off. It was so amazing. And it was about this woman losing her son. A true story. Uh, he had a heart defect and they discovered it and he was in perfect health. But then they said, oh, there's something weird here because he wasn't feeling well and he was dead in a couple of days. And that book just blew our minds. And then uh, when Henry, our son, was sick, then I read uh, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. And that was amazing. And so there's a tradition, you know, this my book will break no new ground, but it is, you know, uh, it's just our effort to to help other people through something very difficult that, uh, you know, we're not alone. There's other people, of course, that have had it happen, but it's still thank goodness, remains a, a smaller percentage of people that this happens to. But uh, yeah, our job, because we loved our son and continue to love him, even though he's dead, uh, is to help other people. Because that's the only, and I learned that also through getting sober. It was funny because, you know, when you go to meetings in sobriety, that was, of course, very helpful. So when I heard that there were meetings for people who'd lost their kids, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going right away. I didn't I didn't do that masculine thing where I was like, nah, I'm not going to worry about that. I was like, hell yeah. And it's funny because bereaved parents group are like the delta force compared to like the golf outing <laughs> that like a 12 step program is as wonderful as it is. It's a much more like Bleh. you can imagine people stumbling who meant to go to an AA meeting that they think is going to be heavy going into a bereaved parents meeting and <laughs> jumping out the window. Um, when did you learn? Uh, I don't know if there's a day or a seismic moment, but the, it's a simple wisdom, but helping others is the thing I, I just, I need to be able to, whatever it is I'm doing, I need to be helping others. Uh, well, it always felt good. I can remember, you know, I have a funny memory of going on a little canoe trip, uh, on the Lehigh river in Pennsylvania and with two guys I didn't really know, I lived in New York City at the time, and one guy said, hey, you wanna go on a canoe trip? And I said, oh, all right, you know? And we went, and, and this guy was just cutting a block of cheese with a knife, and he handed it out. And he just goes, he goes, yeah, food tastes better when you share it. And I was like, it was like the heavens opened. I was like, oh my God, it really, it really does, you know? And so I think about that guy a lot. <laughs> food tastes good. Also, another time I remember hearing <laughs> some old lady go like an old lady who you wouldn't think swear would swear going well it takes just as much time to be nice as it does to be an asshole and being like oh yeah so basically those things also the first time i knew that you could be funny was i was a kid in boston and some guy sat down at the table next to me and my parents and he apologized to the people who was joining and he goes uh oh sorry i'm late i had the park in fucking tel aviv and I remember dying because I'm like eight and I'm like, wait, no, he didn't. Mommy, dad, he didn't. He didn't really. He just said that. he. Oh, my God. And that like to me was like the clue to comedy it was like a crazy detail, some bullshit and some insouciance. And I was like, oh, that's there it. Is. So that guy to me, whoever you are, God bless you. The secrets he gave yeah, you. Yeah. The secrets. Hey, the fucking fucking Tel Aviv. I'm a whoa. Whoa. Um, uh, are you or were you an asshole like uh, anywhere along the path? Uh... Uh, I think I had uh, I was challenging during adolescence because before I found alcohol, 
like I had to burn something down, right? As soon as I found alcohol and drugs, I was like, oh, I can do it to myself. Great. I don't need to hurt anybody. I, of course, will through negligence and, and aggression. <laughs> what a blind spot. Yeah, yeah. But but I was like, my favorite thing to damage is myself. But before I found that, I was like, I have to throw a rock through at least one window a day. I've got to start a fire. You know, I've got to fucking yell profanity out of a bus window. Like, I, so adolescence was tough. As soon as I found alcohol, I was like, oh, there we go. You know, that it felt like a chemical equation being completed. I was like, here I am. So then I was just a mess. I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I did. Um, and then when I got sober and you start doing the steps and stuff, then I was like, okay, here's, uh, here's, here's something I like better. Here's something that feels better. And then selfishly, you really get a high when you help somebody out, I mean, lifting somebody up and doing something for them, it just feels good. In addition to seeing them smile, you know, and benefit, you get it too right away. I think I think a lot of people might not realize helping other people it selfishly, Jesus, it feels good. So do it. Be a big asshole by being lovely and you'll feel nice, you know, <laughs> and you'll sleep easier. I, uh, I, your perspective is so unique in your writing over the last, uh, what I've read of your writing over the last 10 years or seen performed, um, and, and just the choices that you've made. I can't imagine how you've experienced the last 10 years in this country as someone who's not afraid to venture into political waters. Just, you must be looking at everyone sideways, wondering what is the matter with all of us? So I'm glad you asked that because I want to say something that might surprise you or people listening and that is i feel like i'm going through a bit of a paradigm shift where i'm so sick of people positioning like how happy cnn fox news msnbc are and their boards when half the people hate the other half of people i can't i'm sick of it i can't handle it anymore yeah Politically, I'm to the left. I, I am a card-carrying socialist. I belong to socialist organizations in the U.S. and the U.K. where I live, all right? My thing is, I want everybody to be able to go to the doctor without being bankrupt. I want people to be able to heat their homes in winter. That's what I want. I want your kid to be able to go to a good school and get a free lunch at school, regardless of your income, whether you're poor or rich. I don't care. I that Those are the things that I want, right? It's very simple. And... um. But that said, I don't hate the guy in Tennessee who is a mechanic and votes differently than me. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. I can't. So, yes, I think there's some terrible things happening right here. We're ruled by a minority. You know, the Supreme Court and the Senate are anti-democratic. Yes, absolutely. But from now, the, if I could, like, you know, assuming people are listening to us right now, the thing I would say is if you're angry at somebody who isn't a billionaire or owns a media company, then you're being played. If you're angry at the guy who lives down the street, then you need to look into your heart and realize you're being taken advantage of because there's no friggin difference between me and that guy or that woman that they want me to hate. Uh, eh. I know that's quite a broad thing to say, but I'm just so sick and tired of it. So, yes, are there problems in the United States? Of course, yes, there are. And they're very similar ones in the UK. But uh, I think what we need to do is uh, it's got to come from the bottom up and we got to start with love. And yeah, I mean, I'm working on it, on, on polishing that opinion. To well, you, you sound sense. sincerely trembling mad. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Because 
It's ridiculous. You know, yeah, I can't stand the Senate. I can't stand the Supreme Court. I can't stand that the way that they do. I'm, I, I, I understand that, you know, it's good to have a House of Representatives and a president. Those branches of the, of, the, of the government, I understand. But the Senate and the Supreme Court are driving me up the wall because they don't represent the people. It's insane. Um, so, yeah. The Daily Injustice is a creator during the pandemic, watching again and again for three years. The wealth disparity, all of it, just yeah. you, it seems to me like the th- the part that's making you indignant is just the simple unfairness in what is happening right well, now. Of course, yeah, across Income, the globe. Yeah, I mean, you know, Gilded Age inequality is terrible, and it has to correct itself, and it will. And I'd rather it had happened in a way that wasn't violent or deadly. You know what I mean? I would rather that the we had a bloodless revolution where we did get a more proportional representation um you know i don't know how it'll work it's not my job to know how it'll work out but i think it is my job having a mouthpiece to encourage people you know when you for example if you see a nancy pelosi being like just vote vote maximum every two years every four years is fine that's insane. People need to be more involved on a daily basis. That's why, that's what I've loved about the organizations that I've been involved in is that how they encourage, you know, just mutual aid, you know, fixing taillights on people's cars so they don't get pulled over and then get some other crazy charge mutual thrown on top aid, of it. You socialist, you card carrying yeah, 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 socialist yeah. advocating out here for mutual aid. Fuck off, Ang- you angry leftist. Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's all I'm saying. And, and I also, I don't, and I'm also sick of all the culture wars have been used so well against us, and they and train, so not subtly though. That's the part that's been most disappointing to me. So not subtly, yeah. Like they, the culture hammer that's been used is successful without subtlety. Yeah, it is. It's sad, and you can't. You got to figure out when you're being played. Like the thing is, is on culture war opinions. Like I don't care what you think about buzz issue. A, B, slash 13. I barely care what I think. It's not important, you know? Like, everybody has to have a have a, a multiply supported, you know, interdisciplinary opinion as to why this is right and that's wrong. You know, you don't. You really don't. And I don't care what people think. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have... It's just... And to fight over it, for Christ's sake. It seems up. like a waste of time, right? You're you're almost running everything through the perspective, I would imagine, of I want my life very small, time with my kids, because I have been forever altered by having lost one of them. And my life is I'm going to birth whatever art I can here, help whoever I can over there, have fun where I can, but I'm going to try and keep my life as small as love. Yeah, and, and but yes, and then when you expand it outward, the guy who votes differently than me or has different beliefs than I do on certain things, uh, what do I want for him? I don't want to put him in a cage. I want him to have good health care. I want him to have food. Mutual aid. You're That's adv- what I want. You, he wants to fight you, but you're like, no, I just like for us to I have mutual aid. And he's like, no, fuck you and your beard. I yeah, want, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't want your but mutual see, aid. That guy, I can turn around in a second because he's not really the scumbag that the news is telling me that he is. You know, like you're pointing past Anderson Cooper and you're saying, no, the billionaire above him, exactly. the, the guys flying yeah. in space, those guys, you can't yeah. trust them. Yeah. Not the meatpackers. Precisely. It's, it's just crazy. But it's working. Oh, it's totally working. Yeah, it's totally working. How does it work? Uh, well, you know, they, they anesthetize us. They divide us. They work. They train us. You know, especially social media is very helpful. They train us to hate each other and to do their jobs. Like whenever people on social media go to attack somebody, 
a billionaire is jerking off. <laughs> They're jerking each other off. It's so thrilling. To, when, really, when there's people... a cabal. Oh, there, yeah. There's a cabal. <laughs> you think there's a cabal of Russian oligarchs somewhere. Uh, like, and American. With their, <laughs> they're all the same. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're botting off. They're, you yeah, think yeah, they're yeah, having yeah. Uh, competitions of masturbation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anytime, anytime they can get you and I in a fist fight rather than looking up and seeing what they're doing to us, you know, to the environment, to, uh, it's to food, to mil what military expenditure, you know, I mean, it's crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got a good amount of righteous rage inside you from three years of pandemic oh, writing a book. Another thing <laughs> that happened with me is, OK, here's a big thing that happened to me. I'm in the hospital with my son who's got a brain tumor. Right. I will then be, you know, and we'll be in a hospital bed next to somebody who's poor. Right. So I'm sorry. So we, we're, I'm in a in a hospital with you know, nurses who are paid like shit, who can't live in the middle of the city and have to commute for an hour and a half to get to their work in the central London hospital. So I'm, I'm, I'm with poor people all day. And then I go to a friggin' awards show in a tuxedo and I'm with millionaires and sometimes billionaires. And I realize, you know, the poor people, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve to be wondering where their next meal is going to come from. Nor does the billionaire at the big media event deserve the, the helicopters and the jets. It's not about that. It's there's enough to go around. And I now know that having been around the whole spectrum and having seen the way that the ultra rich live and stuff and hoard things. It's crazy. Like they, there's enough to go around. So anybody who tells you there's not enough to go around or you've got people at the Fed now saying that they've got to drive wages down to deal with inflation, like the wages of the average guy. No, they don't. It's the bosses who need to not just sit on five empty friggin' mansions. This they is don't why even you're in. a card-carrying socialist. It this is. is why they can't allow you near microphones. This is why your Precisely. publicists don't want you yeah. talking in <laughs> public because you're going to go crazy and you're going to tell everybody you're going to be Hollywood left of Hollywood left when yeah, you just yeah, yeah. say, I'm not here for America at all. You're going to burn any sponsorships, any... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, the thing is, is I love... I mean, what, what necessarily does America mean? I can tell you that I love Americans. I can tell you that I love our national parks and our dynamic, incredible cities and jazz music and baseball. Like, there's <laughs> like, what the fuck is not to love? You know, I mean, there's so of course I love it's because I love Americans and their kids and their grandparents, you know, that I want them to have a meal. And to not freeze to death in January. Mutual <laughs> aid. I love the idea just, of you radically polarizing yeah. because you're just saying, can we all? You're running on a platform of <laughs> can, can guy, we all help each other? I, and the answer's like, yeah. fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can a guy have a sandwich? <laughs> Sniper's bullet. Oh, <laughs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The projects that lure you now, what do they have to have? Uh, they either have to be very good and exciting uh, or shoot near my house. 
Uh, or, yeah, if I write them myself, then they're set near my house. And then they just have to say something worthwhile. For example, you know, Catastrophe was a small show about domestic issues, but I think it, because it explored them on such a molecular level, like we really tried to surgically get in there and stick the scalpel in areas that hurt, I think that is what contributed to its success. I so, should tell the audience, I imagine many people who are here would be here because of Catastrophe, but I should recommend it with uh, my highest uh, praise because it was really artfully done. It's one of the many reasons I admire you. Uh, it's a very small project that looks small and just resonated, echoed in a very big way artistically because you captured some male-female stuff that I had not seen captured before in a romantic uh, comedy type sitcom setting. Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, I mean, like Sharon Horgan and I wrote it and produced it and starred in it. And uh, I think it was good that it was just the two of us writing it, you know, one man, one woman and uh, nobody else. And uh, yeah, we so we went as deep as, as deep as we could. And um, it thank God it worked, you know. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a big dice roll for any of the networks, you know, that did it. Channel four in the UK and Amazon Prime in the US because, uh, you know, it didn't cost a lot to make. And uh, it was domestic, uh, but we tried to uh, go hard in the paint. That's a sports metaphor that I thought I'd fold in for your fans. Thank you for speaking in their language. What is your relationship with that show? Uh, I'm very grateful uh, to it, and I'm proud of it, you know, because... Because we didn't, you know, I didn't try to, you know, uh, solve any gigantic issues. We just tried to tell simple stories well and have its animating force be love, you know, and, and how, and like a blue collar love, which is to say love that goes to work every day, even when it doesn't want to. And that is about the sweat that you have to put into your relationships if you want them to work you know and how that even that can be romantic you know so that so that was the idea was to tell that was one of the degrees of graces that i saw in how artfully you guys handled that though the the idea of every episode having the feeling of yeah this is worth the work but it doesn't mean you're not going to question whether it's worth the work yeah, and it yeah. doesn't mean that Love showing you your blind spots isn't going to be ugly and awkward and you're not going to want to see them. But I just thought, I don't know what you regard as an honest relationship show, but I thought that you really explored the depths and roots of the men, the, the men that, uh, that have problems not looking inside and what they can learn in a relationship. Do you know, since you're elderly, do you remember the show Chicago <laughs> Hope? Uh, yes, but I, I was not a fan. I, I Not a fan or a fan. I didn't watch it. Right. So there was one scene in that. So Mandy Patinkin um, plays a heart surgeon, and his wife is in a mental hospital. And he still loves her, and he still visits her. It's impossible to maintain a marriage with her because she requires inpatient medical care for the rest of her life. But... He still loves her, and he goes in, and he's Mandy Patinkin, so they rightfully capitalize on his amazing talents, and he would sometimes play the piano for her and sing to her in the mental hospital. And in one episode, they're having a Christmas pageant for all the mental patients, and Mandy Patinkin is playing in it, playing the piano and singing for his wife and the other patients. And she's like, looks like a little girl. She's like clapping and starry-eyed and so happy that her husband came in and played for her. And that really messed me up as a kid. I remember watching that with my mom and being like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, you know? And Mandy Patinkin, you see the show, he's in agony. It's so difficult for him that his wife is in this situation, but he loves her and he shows up 
and he does it and she melts for it and it just makes her day and she's struggling oceanically you know dealing with her mental issues and fucking imprisoned but i was like oh my god it was like the purest distillation of love i'd ever seen so i was like i want to some so in early iterations of catastrophe i thought maybe someone's in prison or her mental hospital maybe i can straight (laughs) up rip this show off but then we were like uh you know what if it just feels like they're dangerously crazy often enough right so so, so that, I think that was a sort of a clue to the DNA sort of strand we wanted to tug at. But do you look at something else on television and think of honesty in a relationship? Like, what do you look at? Oh, Did you have a model? Okay. You're, you're sitting here with a writing partner. I don't know how often yeah, you've yeah. done that. I don't know how many writers' rooms you've been in. But it's you and her, and you're writing a right. show. You're writing, directing, acting, producing, everything. It's your project. A okay. uh, lot of shit there. Right. So at first, that was the only thing, was that one episode of that one show that inspired me in terms of male-female relationships. Even though there are other good ones. Of course there are. It's just that's the one. Then there, So that was a positive influence. A negative influence was so many of the sitcoms where you see the dynamic where the husband is like, my wife's driving me crazy. Or the <laughs> wife being like, he's such an idiot. And I'm like, that's not real. Real is within the space of five minutes going from not I want to kill my wife, but I'm thinking about how to kill my wife. Will I get away with it? Do I even care? Wouldn't it be fun to sit in prison and have people fucking piss on me because I killed her and I'm a piece of shit. I hate her. I hate myself. You go from that to being like folding her socks when you're doing the laundry and crying because you can't believe the luck of those socks to go on her beautiful angelic feet. And how did she ever deign to be with such a piece of shit like you? You know what I mean? So in a real marriage, you vacillate between those two things in five minutes. Easy, easy. So so the terrible relationships in a lot of American sitcoms also inspired us in a negative way. We never wanted to do that. If somebody was like, hey, he's driving me crazy, then in Catastrophe, you had to be measuring the length of piano wire that you would behead them with. That had to be what you were thinking. And, or you were literally vomiting because you thought about your spouse too hard while you were at work and you love her so much that you have to puke into a bucket. You know what I mean? Like, it had to... It had to jiggle between those things. Then when we were writing the first season before it ever broadcast, we both saw the third installment of the Before Sunrise trilogy Mm -hmm. by Richard Linkletter Mm -hmm. with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. And Before Midnight, the third one where they're married, have kids and are in the shit and at each other's throats. I saw that and I immediately called Sharon and I was like, stop whatever you're doing and watch this. And that was then that that reordered in my mind. Then that's when I said, okay, we need to step it up. So we went through all the scripts for the first season and said, are they like, could someone watch before midnight and then watch this and then not throw it in the trash? I feel regret that I'm not familiar with the shows so that I could connect with the idea of you were intent on writing a love story and making it honest and yeah. accomplishing what? Hopefully people could watch the show and then take a little of that into their own lives. You know, understand that love yeah, it can be butterflies and romance, but it also is like a dirty toolbox. Duty. It can yeah. be duty as well. Exactly. It can be dutiful and there can yeah. be beauty in that in duty. In that duty, exactly. And then one thing we saw after, or that I saw, I don't even know if Sharon has seen it, is um, If Beale Street Could Talk, the movie that I Barry Jenkins did after um, Moonlight. He did an adaptation of the James Baldwin book, 
if Beale Street could talk. And there were some conversations between characters in that that I really, really wish I could have lifted wholesale and put in Catastrophe. James Baldwin, yeah. huh? Yeah, I saw it after we'd already made Catastrophe, so okay. I wish I could go back in time and fold. But you're talking about the inspiration of that and the rage that it yeah, induced in you and, and the eloquence inspired the you? The way that people interact in there is some of the purest truth I've seen on a screen about male, female, and familiar familial interaction. So some I will steal that. Anybody listening, James Baldwin, I know he's a listener, uh, Barry <laughs> Jenkins, uh, I will explicitly. And uh, yeah, sue me. I don't yeah, care. James Baldwin, huge fan. Yeah. Uh, the man who fell to earth. That yeah. is what you are doing now. You are very selective about your projects. I was telling you, talking beforehand, that I'm looking forward. I love when I find an artist who I regard as discerning. Like mm. perhaps he'll have to make paycheck choices, but I believe that he's got to make choices that drag him away from his life. So they better be good choices. <laughs> and you're going to be careful about them, or they could be close to home and you make some money. Which one is Man Who Fell to Earth? It was both. <laughs> both. What joy. So, uh, yeah, I read those scripts. It was tremendous. And I read the book, The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, by uh, Walter Tavis, who has an amazing hit rate. Uh, he wrote The Man Who Fell to Earth. He wrote The Hustler, The Color of Money, <laughs> and... Uh, the chess Netflix show with Anya Taylor Joy, okay, yeah, I'm, which has a name that I can't remember. I mean, I don't know whether it's Queens or Bridgerton or what. It's one. It's one of those. Forgive chess, me. Chess it's one of them. Folks. It's got chess in, in Queens England. Game. And Queens game. Thank you, Mike. Queens Gambit. Queens Gambit. Gambit. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I the subtitle is Chess Buddies. But anyway, um, so Walter Tavis wrote the book. It was great. The movie is insane. The Man Who Fell to Earth. David Bowie's performance is unbelievably great. Um, but the movie itself is deeply bonkers. Hopefully people will get angry at me for saying that before I say that I enjoyed watching it, but it's a <laughs> fucking disaster. That movie uh, I would show in film schools and be like, that's something that people do with two hours and, and millions of dollars. That's one thing a guy did with that. Insane. Um, it's an enjoyable way to spend two hours, certainly, but I don't know how you defend it. And maybe that's all it needs, but I struggle with the film adaptation, it, despite being one of the biggest David Bowie fans in the world. And his performance, again, is unbelievable. So you're just saying it's crap. You're, you're killing it from every angle and then trying to be respectful of it at the same time. But you're saying it disappointed you. You wanted it to be Here's better. Here's what I would say. That movie's not for me, even as a film, even though it was an enjoyable way to spend two hours. There maybe shouldn't be a distinction. Okay. Um, Very gentle of I'm you. I'm also not saying that I'm correct, because if you like it, you win. You're the winner. Like, if you're like, no, actually, it's good. Great. Uh, but to me, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And um, so the book is tremendous, and the scripts for the new show are tremendous. And it's by Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet and John Lavin. And um, it stars Chiwetel Ejiofor and Naomi Harris. And they're amazing. Um, most of my stuff is with Chiwetel. And he's just was such a pleasure to spend time with a brilliant, kind, amazing, wonderful guy. And uh, my sister is played by an amazing actress named Sonia Cassidy. And we had so much fun together. Uh, and the show is great. Yeah, and it's airing now. It's uh, it's about halfway done. But you can watch it on Showtime. Um, edu? Did they have an I don't edu think it's website? an edu. No, um, it's a dot org. Okay, terrific. Uh, you're in town because you're working. One of my mentors, Carl Hyacin, at the Miami Herald. One of the friends of the show, Bill Lawrence, could have chosen anything in the world to do as a project. You have a lot of freedom with your projects, but you're doing. Uh, are you honoring the old Miami Herald journalist, Carl Hyacin? Are you just telling the story of weird, corrupt South Florida uh, journalism from a different time? What are you embarking on here? 
Well, so my understanding, I mean, I, I sadly have not yet met Carl, but he's been on set a couple times. Um, I mean, and certainly this is a very loving adaptation. My understanding is that Bill Lawrence, who made um, Ted Lasso, with the success of that, uh, they said, hey, man, whatever you want to do. And he said, oh, whatever I want to do is Bad Monkey by Carl Hyacin. And so, yeah, a very lovingly rendered adaptation of an amazing book by Carl Hyacin and then some tremendous scripts by Bill Lawrence and uh, and his writers who help him out. Now, who's in it? Who's it for? Vince okay. Vaughn is yep. in it. Vince Vaughn stars in it. Uh, Vince Vaughn, Jody Turner Smith, Michelle Monaghan, um, myself, and Meredith Hagner, uh, who is amazing. And uh, Miami's I, I, not Miami's not close to home for you, so you've it's decided. Not. Well, here's the thing. Um, Bill Lawrence, I've known for a long time, right? And he makes amazing television. I like to make television, so I thought, you know, it would be smart work with Bill Lawrence and see how he does it. So that was the big draw, was to work with Bill. And then the fact that the project was so great. I mean, the book, Bad Monkey, is amazing. I would say if there's any aspiring uh, filmmakers uh, listening, then you've got to read Bad Monkey and then see how Bill adapts it, because a real masterclass. Um, but yeah, great book, amazing creative team. So yeah, it uh, made sense. I could talk to you for a long time, but we're going to let you go with a couple of last questions here. Um, what did you learn writing your book? The current one. The one you're writing right now. Um, what have I learned? I've learned that writing, even if it's not for publication, because if I had just written this stuff and nobody ever read it, it would have helped me. It helped me organize thoughts and recognize threads that help me sort of hold the story of Henry's life and the significance of it inside of me. I was writing a thing yesterday about my wife um, where we're learning that his cancer has returned and he's going to die. And the way that my wife behaved during that time made me feel so grateful to be with her and to know her and to be walking through life with her that I don't even know what to say. And so as wonderful as my wife is, I can forget that and, and take her for granted. But now I've sort of gone through an exercise grappling with Henry's death and the exercise of writing this book that I, it has been underlined for me how amazing she is. So I've learned that I've learned yeah, just so gratitude in writing it for your wife. Big time, big time. That um, you didn't have before the starting of the writing, I, or you had it, of course, you love her. I did, but it was like it's like I kind of got to see it from another angle. It's like I don't know. It, let's say my wife is an elephant, and her trunk is like sticking through a, uh, a hole in the wall, and I'm like, wow, look at that trunk. And now I've gone around the back of the wall, and I'm like, oh, you've turned look it at into that. a problem. Look at that fucking elephant! <laughs> Holy shit, is that thing huge? But the, what it is is my love for her and her. She's physically not as large as an elephant. Not an African elephant. But Asian it, elephant, you know, they're smaller and hairier. <laughs> She's more like an Asian elephant. No. <laughs> I, I imagine, though, this would be something. I never mind imagine, obviously, that it mm -hmm. would test love, this kind of grief. This, uh, that it would, And then on the other oh, side yeah. of it, you would have the all the more confidence in your love if you endure it and survive it. Both. Because in the beginning, you grieve differently. Everybody grieves differently. So when she wasn't grieving exactly the same way that I did, I was like, well, obviously she's crazy or a bad person. I thought that. <laughs> and then you realize, wait a minute, 
she carried him in her belly and breastfed him. And, he, you know, he kicked his way out of her body, you know, with a hammer. I'm an outsider <laughs> yeah. here. I'm and, uh, in this relationship. I'm I'm a passenger. Yeah. And so, you know, like so her relationship to him is is wildly different than mine, even though it's in, it un incredibly strong, couldn't be stronger. So you you learn people grieve differently. That's difficult to to realize. I lost my train of thought, but I think that was a full. Well, just what capsule. you learned, what you learned from the book, combined with your love of your wife and how it tests that love, oh. and what and what you learn about uh, yourself in the in the writing of the book, because yeah. you're examining your relationship, you're examining uh, you're examining patterns, you're going through your grief and the steps through sobriety and everything yeah. else. You're journaling in a way, and now you're going to give that to the public. That's yeah. the ex when you said exercise, I wasn't sure whether you meant the term exercising demons or exercise. Exercising oh, like yeah. exercise. Yeah, I meant exercise like uh, like a stairmaster. That's the reason that I asked the question because uh, I, I admire the choice that you made with the freedom that you have to explore to explore your grief in a way to help others. Well, uh, you're very kind, and yeah, and I hope yeah I, I hope a few people read it and it, and it helps them it helps them through their day. We'll bring you back when it's time uh, to sell that book. Are you still doing stand-up comedy or is that something like you're you're very good at it? I don't know how much you uh, you like it or like uh, need the tour the way a lot of comedians do. Oh yeah, no, I love it. Um, and yes, in London I was. Now I'm bouncing back and forth so much between London and Miami that. Uh, I haven't been, but I will as soon as like yeah, like later this month I can do stand up in London. But it feeds you. It's oh, it, God, like yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. love uh, you yeah, love yeah. getting on a stage, love uh, jumping into the abyss, uh, love, love the fear of it, love, love it not death. knowing if the material is going to work. Couldn't love it more. Yeah, I like I said, I admire that because it, it seems scary to me. It's not something that I would love doing. Yeah, but like I said, you if you have a weird growth, like imagine a big skin tag hanging off of you that most people don't have, but this skin tag, you can plug it into something at a comedy club and it'll make you feel good. That's what it's like. So The crack. Yeah, the treatment, the cream for the big skin tag only is sold at comedy clubs. Uh, thank you. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Dan. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.